Welcome to the Polari Podcast with me, Paul Burston. And me, Sophia Blackwell. And we're going to be discussing some of the online Polari events that took place in January. Paul, how has the uh, online world been working out for you at the start of 2021? It's been very interesting watching, watching it grow, because I think at the beginning, when we first started doing online events, people were a little bit hesitant. Maybe they weren't familiar with the technology, or maybe there was an aversion to the idea of paying for online content. I think there's an assumption that all all online content should be free. And I think what's happened now is that people have realised that if they want, you know, live arts to survive, they have to support them. And so I've I've seen our events grow month on month. You know, our our first one was back in October, November, um, and the numbers were decent, but not huge. Um, but now we're getting numbers that are equivalent to what we'd get at South Bank. So it's, it's, they're similar to our live to our live physical events in, in numbers of audience now, which is great. So we're, reach, we're reaching new audiences with it, which is fantastic. Obviously, that's one of the one of the the best um, things to come out of it. Really, is that we reach people that we have we haven't reached before. It's potentially the most exciting part, isn't it? And obviously, you know, silver linings at the moment are few and far between. But obviously, as arts organisations, we've been talking about accessibility for quite long periods of time. And yet this has really kind of helped level the playing field. So I hope that we can take kind of some of those learnings and that some of these people, if if they can, will join us um, in real life when, when this is over. I think so. And I, I think I think also there's, a, you know, you know we, we tour a lot and we obviously... We'll, we'll get audiences, sizable audiences in places where, places like Brighton, places like Manchester, you know, big cities where there is a sizable LGBTQ plus population. And what we tend to find when we go to smaller places is that while there may be an audience there, they may not be quite as out or as comfortable coming to an LGBTQ plus event as they would be if they were living in a in a in a larger city, I think that oftentimes the people tend to be a little bit more hesitant, and I've certainly had, had feedback to you know, say, confirming that from people in the past. So, mm-hmm. I think being online um, gives people the, the option to attend an event without declaring themselves in any way. So um, we're attracting people that maybe wouldn't be comfortable coming to a to an actual event as well. So, all of those things together, I think, has created a a new element to our audience. Great. Well, that takes us up towards the two events that you've run in January. So first of all, let's talk about the event on January the 13th. And one of the authors who uh, was at that event was uh, Fiona Mosley. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, she was, Fiona is a previous um, Polari Prize winner. And she has a new novel called Hot Stew coming out in March. I've worked with her a few times and she's, she's, she's great, great to work with. Um, so I thought it'd be good to get her back and talk about Elmet and what it meant winning the prize, but also to showcase the new book, which is very, very different. Um, Elmet's obviously very, um, it's set in, in, in a woodland. It's very, um, it's in the countryside. It's kind of very magical. And the new book is set in Soho and it's very contemporary. It was, I, was, I was curious to ask her, because Elmet was so well received, it got um, shortlisted for the Booker um, and several other prizes and one other prizes, including ours. And I was interested how, how difficult it would be, you know, having had such a claim for your debut novel, the weight of expectation that must be on your shoulders when you're sitting down to write your second novel. 
But of course, Fiona had already written the second novel when the book, when the when Almaid came out. So she didn't have that issue because she, she, she'd already written Hot Steel or written a draft of Hot Steel at least. So, so um, my, my question went a little bit uh, <laughs> sideways. And the other author that you speak to in the January 13th online event is the author of a non-fiction book, uh, Mohsen Zaidi, author of A Dutiful Boy. I've heard some really wonderful things about this book. Did it live up to all the hype? It's a, it's, I think it's extraordinary. I, th- I think it's an absolutely beautiful book. Um, it's about his journey growing up in very working class, East End, um, Muslim family, and realising that he's gay and coming out and the various challenges that, that he faced, um, not, just, not just in terms of his um, cultural, religious background, but also in terms of class. There's also a very, 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 um, I think universal in many ways, journey between him and his parents, where at the beginning, his parents are very really don't understand or aren't willing to accept and he reaches the point of actually considering you know cutting himself off from them and I I, I know many people who've who've had similar experiences you know from all from all different cultural backgrounds who've had similar experiences with their families he made the decision that no he was going to take them on his journey and he was going to educate them and it's it's a very he's very very generous of spirit the book is very generous In the first of two events for January, I was joined by authors Mossin Zaidi and Fiona Mosley. Mossin came to talk about his debut book, A Dutiful Boy, a memoir about growing up gay and Muslim in the UK. Fiona came to talk about her books Almet, which won the Polari First Book Prize in 2018, and her new novel Hot Stew, which is published in March. She kicked us off with a reading from Almet. It's about um, a family... Uh, living in South Yorkshire, who decide to build a house for themselves in, uh, in a little wood uh, on land they don't own, um, and they're living in a quite a, a poor situation. And they and um, the father of the family um, decides that this is the best for best thing to do for his his son and daughter. And so the novel's kind of about their life in in the woods together, and also um, the conflict that arises around their presence there. So. Um, and the central characters are these these two uh, siblings, Danny and Kathy. And the bit that I'm going to read is sort of halfway through the middle of the book. They've just had a, a hard winter and, and spring comes. Spring came in earnest with clouds of pollen and dancing swifts. The little birds back here to nest after a flight of a million miles were buffeted by the wind, which blew hot, then cold, and clipped unripened catkins off the ash. The swifts were too light to charge at the gusts, like gulls or crows, and through them I saw wind as sea. Thick, pillowy waves that rolled at earth and wooden shores, and through tiny creatures at jutting rocks. The swifts surfed and dived and cut through the invisible mass, which to them must have roared and wailed as loudly as any ocean on earth, only to catch the air again on the updraft and rise to the crest. They were experts. They knew how it was done. And they brought the true spring, not the spring that sent timid green shoots through compacted frostbitten and soil, but the spring that came with a rush of colour, a blanket of light, unfurling insects and absent mist, 
prodigal birds on this prevailing southwesterly. When the heat was up, traveller lads from the caravan site down the way took off their tops and rode their dirt bikes around the lanes bare-chested, bezed up and down with boxes of ferrets clipped to the backs of their bikes, and they looked for fields or verges with good networks of warrens. They popped the ferrets down the holes and out they would come again with wriggling rabbits for the lads' suppers. Cathy liked to watch them. She desired them. She itched to join in, but we didn't dare ask. Instead, we hid in ditches or behind hedges and scouted them. That became our game. We stalked the lads like they were our prey. Wonderful. Um, the book won many plaudits, um, not least our own prize. And it was also won the Somerset Maugham Prize and was long, it was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. How did it feel to have your debut novel so well, so rapturously received? Yeah, it was it was really, really nice. Um you know, I, I really, uh, needless to say, I wasn't expecting it. Bits of the reception were overwhelming, but I had some really, really good advice uh, early on from, I think it was from my um, my publicist at John Murray, uh, who's called Yassine. And he said, you know, Fiona, whatever happens, don't forget to enjoy it. Um, and, I, and I thought that was really great advice because, um, yeah, the, the bottom line was that it was a huge amount of fun. Is there afterwards, when you when you sort of then sit down to write your difficult second novel, um, does all that kind of does that does that does it sort of weigh on you or all, all that acclaim that you think? Well, I, I now need to sort of match the success of this of this first book. For me, no, and there's a very specific reason for that, um, and that's that I'd, I'd already written quite a lot of my second novel when when Elmet was published, so. Oh. I'd, I'd had the idea for my second novel, Hot Stew, um, I guess as far back as, yeah, 2013. I'd started writing Elmer at that point and um, I, I had this idea for for another novel and I just promised myself that I wouldn't start that other novel until I'd finished Elmer. Um, but I was quite excited to start the other novel. Um, so, yeah, as soon as I'd finished Elmer, literally the day after I, I started on Hot Stew, and I can't emphasise this enough, the book's so different. I mean, that passage I just read is fairly typical of Elmer in that, you know, it's it's quite serious. It's quite serious stuff. Whereas Hot Stew, there are definitely um there are definitely lots of serious elements and there are serious themes, but it's also much more lighthearted and, and joyous and there are there are actual jokes in it, which there definitely aren't in Elmer. We'll come back to you um and talk about Hot Stew some more in a little while. Um let's go over to Mossin now and a dutiful boy. Um, can you tell us a bit about about the book and give us a bit of a taste of it, please? Um, it is uh, a memoir about growing up in East London um, in a very uh, strict kind of Muslim sect. Um, to give you a flavour, the, the book opens with my dad beating himself with blades. So it was quite a relig- very religious family. I uh, became the first person from my school to, to, to go to Oxford, where I read law. And then at Oxford, I, I came out as gay and then eventually I told my parents. And so the journey that the, I guess the, the main theme of the book is, is the, the, con, the, the, the apparent contradiction between my faith and my sexuality. But it, it goes beyond that because there are so many other worlds in which I was learning to exist. So I, I, was, um, I grew up in a predominantly Pakistani neighbourhood. Uh, I don't remember having any white friends really growing up, not through choice, but just because everybody was Pakistani. And I remember going to Oxford and being, for the most part, the only non-white person in the room. Um, and then similarly, um, 
it was about class. So for example, I, I had no idea that not everybody had a student loan and I'd never heard of Eton or Harrow. And so those are some of the things that I write about. So it's a book about family love because where I end up is writing about uh, coming out to my parents and what that's like um, and how they react um, and just how much uh, work I have to do to get them to a point where they might be able to accept me for, for who I am. Could you give us a bit, a little taste of it? So I'm just going to read from, from the prologue. Her promise to meet him was only to placate me. It was hollow, like our love had become. For 10 years, my mum had resisted, fought against the idea as though she were holding off an army at the castle gates. And yet, here we were. A day I thought would never come the drawbridge about to lower. In battle, are you ever really ready for the white flag? In the moment, the focus is on the fight. So when surrender comes, the impact of it might leave you dumbfounded. I played the long game and won. My heart didn't jump for joy or skip a beat. It lay inert and heavy in my chest. My boyfriend and I, would visit her and my dad at their home. A home from which it felt like so much of me had been exiled. Now though, we would both go there to eat Pakistani food, cooked with her hands, with her history. Tastes from a faraway place to usher in an equally foreign concept. My parents lived in a London suburb, six stops east from Mile End on the central line. Those six stops were almost as familiar to me as the family home itself. At Stratford, I would forget what they had said to me. At Leighton, I would discard what they had done. By Leightonstone, I put down the anger I felt towards Islam, dear to them and once so dear to me. At Snaresbrook, I'd suppressed my anger toward them. Then, South Woodford, the penultimate stop. That's where I would leave behind what I cherished most of all, my love for him. To take it with me would have been to disrespect, to demean it. On this day, though, no part of me would be left behind, not my love for him and not him either, not his whiteness or the sharp blue of his eyes. If only I could dim the bright blue, which I love so much, just for that evening, make him smaller, moulded, to fit neatly into their closed hearts. It's, it's a very, very, very moving and very big-hearted book. You write about family tensions and the conflict that you go through with them very, very um, generously, I think, because you, 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 you let the reader see all the different sides of where people are coming from and, and, and why. How difficult was it to, to relive and write about those experiences? Was it quite hard? It really dep it depended on the day and it depended on what I was writing about. Because some, some of the experiences were, it was good to relive them. Because by reliving them, I kind of confronted them. And I felt really proud of the younger me for being able to go through that. Like one of the things I write about is um, a witch doctor coming to the house to try and cure me. I was angry at my dad. I was angry at this random guy who was pretending to be a doctor. But I knew that rage was not going to win whatever this battle was. So for one of the things I write about was our house being petrol bombed um, in a racist attack when, when I was about 18. Um, 
And I remember sitting there writing and I had tears coming down my face because what, what we did collectively was suppress it. It happened and we moved out of the house. We moved away from the area and we kind of never really spoke about it again. And it was only when I came to, to write about it that I just thought about how really how serious that was. What message that sent to an 18 year old non-white person about their role in this society and how that stayed with me for such a long time. Um, but I never I never addressed it. So I guess it was a mixture of those things. Um, you also write in the book about racism on the gay scene. Do you think that this is a problem that's in any way getting worse or getting better? Do you think people are becoming more conscious of it and trying to address it? I have to hope that things are, are getting better. And I think, that, I think that they are. I think because we are having more, as a community, we're having better conversations about what's acceptable and what's not. I, I do think it, it, it's changing. Um, unfortunately, I think social media and, and particularly kind of dating, gay dating apps have quite a lot to answer for. So up until very recently, there was an ethnicity filtering on Grindr. And it, some of the language that, that wouldn't be acceptable in real life was acceptable on, on places like Grindr. But I think that, that apps like that have woken up to, to the responsibility they have to address those issues. I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the apps. I was, I was going to ask you about that because I do think that Grindr in particular, um, I know things are getting better now, but I think there's a, there's a tendency on there for men to sort of be very harsh, very harsh about each other and to find different ways of discrediting one another and whether it be based on body, t- body type or age or, or race. And it, 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 it isn't helping us as a community, I don't think, to sort of see each other. I, mean, I remember years and years ago, Larry Kramer, back in the days of the AIDS crisis in New York, saying, you know, we have to see ourselves as more than just cocks and asses." And you know, then lo and behold, along comes this app that basically reduces people's conversation to, got any dick pics, mate, you know? I mean, you know, I think that's, that is part of the problem with, with gay dating apps. But I think, it, you know, it's the social media in general. I think that it dehumanises us. It takes away something that is really important about the way that we interact with one another um and i think i mean you know one of the one of the anecdotes i write about is i've only ever had one girlfriend and i broke up with her on msn messenger because i didn't have to see her reaction and it was so much easier to do as a 15 year old boy who was really scared um behind us you know typing on on screen um but yeah i mean that of course applies to apps as well um and i think that the, the, the risk there is is I guess it, it does extend to, to how we how we engage with our politics is if you don't have to if you're not surrounded by or learning from or listening to people who are not who are different to you, then it's kind of inevitable that you end up with a particular mindset of the world that is not challenged by anything or anybody. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, let's go back to Fiona and talk. Let's dive into hot stew, which I've been reading and really, really enjoying. Um, as you said, it's very, very different to the previous book. Elmet was set in the Gothic woodlands of Yorkshire. This is a very much a city novel and, and a pretty racy one in, in, in parts as well. Tell us a little bit about it and then uh, maybe give us a taste from it, please, Fiona. Costume, which is out in March. Yeah, it's set in, in Soho in central London. And um, like with Elmet, I suppose the one similarity between Hot Stew and Elmet is that it's about um, it's about a piece of property and a dispute over a piece of property. Um, that's the dry part. Um, I suppose I suppose the rest is where the kind of the humour story comes in. So this piece of property is prime real estate. It's a Soho townhouse, 
um, and its inhabitants. Uh, it has mon- many different inhabitants um, from the basement where there are a group of um, squatters living um, on the ground floor. There's a really old, long-established French restaurant. And then on the upper floors, um, there's a Soho walk-up. So it's, it's home to um, a group of sex workers. The woman who owns this building, who uh, is trying to kind of gentrify it and the area and gentrify her own building, you know, she doesn't have any kind of any, you know, she doesn't have any connection to uh, criminal activity besides that which um, she inherited. So she's she's trying to kind of um, shift all of the residents of this place out. Um, this chapter is called Common Snail. On the corner of the street, there is an old French restaurant with red and white checkered tablecloths. It has served the same dishes with ingredients sourced from the same suppliers and wines from the same vineyards. The bottles are stacked on the same shelves and when they are pulled out and dusted off, the silky liquid is poured into the same set of glasses or ones of a similar style, bought sporadically to replace those that have smashed. The plates are the same, small, round, porcelain. When the weather is good, tables are placed outside. There is a space between the public thoroughfare and the exterior wall, and the tables are set tightly, with two chairs tucked beneath. One of the tables wobbles. Over the years, thousands of napkins have been folded and placed under the offending leg. Hundreds of customers have complained and moved to alternatives, and thousands more have quietly put up with the inconvenience. They've spilled glasses of wine, grumbled, and considered asking to move before deciding against it. The restaurant serves escargot. The restaurant has served escargot since it opened. Hundreds, thousands, maybe even millions of snails. They have been thrown into boiling water and their carcasses scooped out and served with garlic butter. The chewy pellets have been picked with forks and fingers and the curled shells discarded. It is lunchtime in midsummer. A box of snails has been taken from the fridge and placed on the table, its contents ready to be immersed and scalded. A single snail, on the small side, wakes from its chilly slumber and climbs over the edge of the box, down the side, onto the stainless steel counter. Slowly, it descends to the floor, then to the back of the kitchen, where there is a door to the street. After about 20 minutes, the little snail finds itself on the alley, behind the restaurant, feasting on the discarded outer leaves of a Savoy cabbage. Once sated, it continues its journey. Wonderful. I um, first came to London in in the mid 80s and my sort of impression of London was that London was basically Soho because (laughs) growing up watching soft cell videos, (laughs) I kind of thinking London was going to be just one great big flesh pot of sin and excitement. And to a large extent it was. Although I have to say, you know, every every sort of five years or so, some some people lament the death of Soho. It's it's not the same as it used to be and and so on, which... um, of course it isn't it's constantly constantly changing yeah. but i do think that like many places um over the last well certainly the last 20 years a lot of the soul is being ripped out by developers because they they're wanting you know there's a sort of sort of gentrification disnification of, of soho how much how important is it do you think that 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 places retain some of their sort of original spirit i suppose or you know that that sense of community or that sense of difference because Soho to me embodied difference it was where you you could meet all kinds of different people from different walks of life yeah that was certainly um my experience um when I first moved to London we all spent time in Soho and around 2012 2011 to 2012 
And then um, sort of towards the end of my time in London, a friend of mine who'd been a long-term uh, resident in Soho, a wonderful guy called Daryl, he, he knew of a room going on Dean Street, which was sort of totally kind of illegal, which went, meant that it was in my price range. And I ended up living in Soho for four months um, in the summer of 2013 which was um, a pretty amazing experience. And I sort of, yeah, I kind of paid my rent to these people who were, were illegally subletting the room. Um, and I had just about enough left kind of after that to just have a really great time. Um, and you can have a really great time on, on a low budget in Soho. I think particularly if you're gay and you're young and you don't mind just getting some tinnies from the Tesco and standing outside pubs rather than actually going in, into pubs. Were, were there particular venues that, that you frequented that you, that you were particularly fond of? In to- I mean, it's not, not a gay bar, but the Nelly Dean on Dean, Dean Street, that's where, um, that's where my pal... Paul Darrell, who I mentioned, um, always used to go. And I got to know a lot of the people there. And then just around the corner from that was where Candy Bar was, which was, uh, you know, London's London's lesbian bar. And that closed uh, ages ago now. And I feel like I'm sort of even showing my age. You remember it opening? (laughs) You know, I I remember that place as as having, because it was London's only lesbian bar, as far as I'm aware, at the time, if you were a lesbian in London, you had to go there, no matter kind of what sort of social group you were from or kind of how old you were or what race you were. You know, all, all of London's different kind of groups would centre on that bar if they were lesbians. Homosexuality is something that spans, you know, the whole human population. Um, you know, it doesn't matter how rich or poor you are. Um in its in its kind of ideal form, I suppose. I mean, it, when I first came out in the eighties, there weren't that many gay venues compared to what happened in the nineties. Um, but the, one of the good sides of that is that people from different walks of life and different sort of different sections of the community would all mix together in one place. Do, do you have any um, memories of, of of Soho that you're willing to share, Mossin? That, 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 that <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure it's past nine pm yet. Um, <laughs> Do you know, I think, so one of the places, it's not Soho actually, it's to join his arms, which was on, on Hackney Road. That was one of the saddest moments, was, was losing that. Um, and, I, you know, as, as Fiona's been talking, I've been trying to think about exactly why. And I think it's because, I mean, there's a lot that's wrong with gay bars, you know, I'm not going to pretend that there isn't. But for some of us, it was the only place where we could just actually be ourselves. Like, you know, when I was, I was living at home for most of my 20s, my parents in the suburb of, of London, and... I couldn't be myself there. And then I was working in a corporate law firm and I couldn't be myself there. And so there were very few spaces where all the masks that we wear, all the different types of person that we feel we have to be can just be abandoned. And what I, what I loved about going to a place like the Joiners was I felt actually quite free. That's what I think is really sad about it is that it's the, it's the, the idea of actually feeling like, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but the joiner's arms sometimes felt like more of a home to me than anywhere else. And it's that sense of home that for, for young queer people who, who are still in environments where, where they're not welcome or, or their identity is questioned, that there might be somewhere where they don't have to worry about that, where they can have a drink and be silly and, and laugh with friends who, who go through the same thing. So I guess that's why once this pandemic is over, I think it's really important to try and find ways of 
reinvigorating some of those spaces. On January the 28th, you spoke to Sophie Ward, who, as we know, is uh, was formerly and potentially currently as well, for we know, but was previously, I think, known to most people in the UK as an actor and has published her first novel, her first work of fiction with Corsair Books, um, an imprint of Achette in the UK, called Love and Other Thought Experiments, which was also long-listed for the booker last year. Uh, did you enjoy speaking to, to Sophie about her, her journey to becoming a, a writer of fiction? Yes, very much. I mean, I, I've, I've, I've met Sophie several times in the past, and she's, she's, she read from her, um, she wrote a book for The Guardian um, a few years ago um, called A Marriage Proposal, and a non-fiction book, which she came and read from at Polari at Southbank. So I knew her to work with as well. Um, and the novel is, is just fantastic. It's a very, very ambitious and it's, it sounds like it's going to be a difficult novel because it's a very philosophical novel. It's a, it's a novel about quite big ideas um, and some quite sort of surrealist, absurdist elements to it. Um, but it's basically about this couple and, and it's about the nature of belief and, and faith and, and what do we, if, if, if two people love each other, but one of them believes in something passionately and the other one doesn't believe in it and is actually, you know, but one, one is very, very um, spiritual and has faith and, and, and belief and, and another is sort of agnostic or atheist or believes in magic. Um, then how, how do those two things work together? And, and she, she manages to do this amazing story where she uses these sort of different experiments and the other author and artist that you had on at that event on the 28th was Jason Ford now I know a little bit less about him can you tell me a bit about what his uh, contribution to the event was like did it involve visuals I, you know he, he, he kind of takes all these different elements of, of his life and filters them into into his work so the work is very autobiographical in many ways and it's also about his experiences um he's Australian, Australian American, mixed race, Africa. Well, so there are all these things going on in, in, in his cultural background, and and he, he 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 speaks of those and speaks to to all those issues in the work. So it explores lots of th- lots of issues to do with identity. Um, obviously, then in the last the last um, year or so, the Black Lives Matter protests. And Trump and all and all of that. So it's 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 very very politically charged, and very very emotionally and sexually charged. It's quite it's, it's not sexually explicit, but it's but it but it's sort of pushing the envelope. In the second of two events for January, we spoke to Jason Ford, artist and writer, and Sophie Ward, author and novelist, whose debut novel was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Jason came to discuss his instant novella Strange Fruit. And Sophie was here to talk about her Booker-nominated novel, Love and Other Thought Experiments. We kicked off with Jason speaking to us from Sitges. A writer I um, now voice respect um, was doing a creative writing course and I signed up for it drunkenly. And then was like, oh God, what am I? Oh God, now I'm going to have to actually do something. Um, and two days before the first deadline for submissions um, to the class, one of my university professors passed away. And 
I was going to, I climbed back into bed, but I took my laptop with me and I just started writing. And so the first chapter that um, you're going to see tonight, this bed, that was the first part of the story that I wrote. For the purposes of this podcast, we're unable to show you the films that Jason screened for us. But here he is talking about the method behind them and what inspired him to make them. Can you tell us a bit about how you went about putting it together in terms of the visual elements and the music score? Well, because I trained as an illustrator, I tend to think more visually than um, lyrically, so to speak, because of the way social media works with hashtags. um, That's why I included them in the text. And that sort of led me to decide on what imagery I wanted to repeat in the backgrounds. So that, so they, that formed very easily. But when I finished the piece, I realized that, that, you know, it's nine minutes long, which is a really long time to be silent. And I decided, oh, so I'll just stick like a background of waves or something. And that didn't really work at all. And then fortunately I called my friend Ruth, who's a really talented musician. And I said, can you look at this piece? And I don't want, um, I don't want a, I don't want a song for it. I, I want to create a soundscape. And so we played with the themes of the background and Ruth was able to create a, a soundscape that would work for each um, chapter. So each chapter of um, the piece has different backgrounds and each one has a, a score that Ruth's created specifically to capture the tone of that piece. You reference current events like obviously the lockdown and also the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, how much how much of an influence was the sort of outside political world and the social world as on you as you were creating? I, it? I think for I think for the first piece, it, the, the lockdown and the Black Lives Matter um, protests were a, a strong inspiration, and that kind of fed through to the rest of the piece because. You know, we were all stuck in our rooms and watching George Floyd die over and over and over and over and over again. And being African-American, but also sort of being removed from that because I was stuck in London at the time, um, really caused me to sort of really think about um, my African-American roots and what it means to be an African-American male in this day and age, especially with the president that we had at the time, it be, it becomes it becomes less a focus, but it, be, it did become very much um, kind of a black folklore piece. That the the chapter that we're going to do later is um, very much inspired by the feelings that were dredged up from um, the protests. You and I have spoken about this before because we're friends and we've talked about it over over lunches in Soho, but. I wondered how much of that was also informed by your own experience in this country over the last few years, because there has been, it seems to me, a, a sort of shift and a lot of a lot of views and attitudes that were hitherto kind of kept quiet have suddenly become very manifest. I mean, I, I think the interesting thing that's happened sort of socially and politically in both the US and Britain is that the things that certain aspects uh, that certain people of the population, certain aspects, communities always knew existed and had always said existed, but everyone's like, oh, it's not that bad, came to the surface. So as horrible as the governments that we've had or are still living under are, 
the one benefit has been that they have brought these things to the surface. We needed to have that conversation in Britain, certainly. And I often say that I, I, as a Black person, I feel much safer in Britain than I do in the US. Even when I'm home in New York, the, the dread of mortal peril is constant. Uh, everybody always thinks of New York as a melting pot, but to me, it's, it's, there's no melting. Unfortunately, George Floyd is not an isolated case. He's just one of hundreds of thousands. But what I noticed this time around is it felt very different. It felt for the first time that people were beginning to understand what we'd been saying. And as much as people wanted to dismiss the Blackout Tuesday, um, I as an African-American, when I woke up and turned on my Instagram and it was just endless black squares, it really hit me because it actually, I felt, I felt like people were listening, that, you, that they were finally getting it. And I think it was really powerful. I mean, yes, it may have been performative on some aspects, but I, the, the signal, I, at least that it sent to me, was you are finally listening. I, I think people are finally listening. I just, you know, let, let's hope they continue listening. <laughs> well, I had a conversation with someone on Instagram who was um, uh, watching George's funeral and he said, I'm just, I'm just in tears and I don't think this is ever going to change. And I said, well, they are listening. But the thing that does scare me is tomorrow they will forget again because you never know, we just can never tell how much of an impact it has. But I, this time did feel really different. Thank you. We'll come back to you in a little while, Jason. We're going to go over to Sophie now and love and other thought experiments. Sophie, could you tell us a bit about the book, please? Yes. So uh, this is my book and um, I, it, it came out of a, a fascination that I had with um these little crossovers between science and art which are called thought experiments and they're just little stories that a lot of scientists use but especially philosophers use to explain their ideas and so um, I was interested to explore that so then I ended up writing a novel that was built on these some of these thought experiments 10 of them I chose um, and then I expanded the the ideas behind them into stories that um, overlapped into a into a novel. And, and where, where do the characters come from? Because you have these two characters, um, well, the two key characters. Where did they come from? Did did, did you always plan to write about, about uh, these two married married women, or was that did that come later, or was that always intentional? Uh, no, I I didn't know that was what I was going to do. I thought I was going to have to um, write some sort of campus novel something about university where I'd have somebody explaining these things and then I liberated myself from that <laughs> realized no I could just make things up and uh, people could be the thing rather than having to to, to say it um, and to explain it so um, they, they came out of uh, I guess obviously life experience um, two, two women um, sharing a life together and uh, there were some things that had happened that I thought, oh, that's interesting. And that is sort of, could, I could use that as a thought experiment. There was one particular thing, which was that I had an ant that kept coming out of my type, my keyboard in my computer. 
nobody would believe me. And I kept saying to my son, oh, I've, uh, you know, I've got an ant in my keyboard. And he was like, ha, 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 because he thought I was just talking about bugs and that I was trying to make a joke. And then one day he saw it coming out of the keyboard <laughs> and he was like, oh, you really do have an ant in your keyboard. Yes. Um, I expanded that and uh, our aunt comes into the life of these two women. And I also wanted to ask about, you know, you're in a relationship and when the other person asks you to believe something or or has a sort of test of faith or something and you have to decide, you know, are you going to go with them? Are you going to commit to this idea and support them? Or are you going to hold back a bit and sort of, and, and what that says about the relationship and then how you how you um, can or cannot go on after that. Could you give yeah. us a taste of the book, please? Sure, sure. I'll just read um, the little opening sequence. Rachel picked up the magazine that Eliza had left in the kitchen. The cover was a drawing of a tree with the roots embedded in a man's head and above him a blousy crown of leafed branches arched towards the sun. It wasn't a typical image for Eliza's reading matter. Rachel turned the page. Thought experiments are devices of the imagination used to investigate the nature of things. That's a lot, thought Rachel, but she liked the sound of it. It tickled her to think of stories being used by scientists. I could be a thought experiment, something Eliza has dreamt up to challenge her hardened reasoning. If I were a thought experiment, Rachel asked Eliza as they got into bed that night, what one would I be? I'm not sure you can be a thought experiment, Eliza said. They're supposed to help you think about a problem. If you can imagine it, then it is possible. Mm, That is one theory. So, Rachel pushed away the book Eliza had picked up and blinked at her girlfriend. Imagine me. Eliza smiled and shook her head. This is what happens when the fanciful encounter the factual. I'm not sure which is which here. Quit stalling, Rachel prodded Eliza's armpit. Fine. You want to be a thought experiment? You can be a zombie. No, no, I've got it. You could be Hume's missing shade of blue. Hume's missing shade of blue, thought Rachel as she laid her head on the pillow. Yes, I can be that. Tell me some more. (laughs) I love the way that you take us into the story by having these very relatable characters, because I think anyone who's been in a um, intense long-term relationship understands the dynamics of of how things work. Um, but then through that, you, you, you go through these very philosophical big questions and, um, you know, love, trust, um, com- compatibility and all these big th- things we ask ourselves about often. But you do it very, 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 very lightly. Um, was, was, it, was it a challenge to uh, keep that, you know, ha- having decided what the, the issues that you were going to, to look at and the different experiments? Was it, was it difficult to kind of keep that kind of organic feel of the, of the storyline going or was, it, was, it, was that quite... Did that come naturally or was it was it a, a challenge to put that together? Well, I know I took my time over it and I didn't decide what order the stories were going to go until the end. Um, and I quite like the idea that there'd be lots of different copies of the book with the stories all in different orders. But um, <laughs> it's not very practical. But that was sort of in the back of my mind. And uh, I just let myself explore each 
individual story. Once I realized I could write from all the different perspectives of the characters and that would, and then they could overlap in ways like one character could meet another or one could be related to another from in different stories. It was very freeing. And um, I didn't like the idea of want, of making it too distancing the, the, philo the philosophy or the ideas behind it. You know, I'd come to them late in my life, although they're all things that we we talk about, but not maybe in such not in an academic way or a formal way. But they're all things we've wondered about. You know, who am I? What am I doing here? What's it all about? Um, and I yes, I just wanted to to bring that out and make it maybe more approachable. It's, it's not your first book, but it's obviously your first novel. Um, and then it was long listed for the Booker Prize. That must have been such a buzz. <laughs> Tell me about that. How, do, how do, When did you hear and how did you feel? Yeah, that was crazy. Um, so, you know, it's quite a long process, the whole thing. But uh, then you don't get to know until sort of just before the announcement. And it's quite un unbelievable, really. Um, I, I felt incredibly lucky. Um, I think the judges this year had got a really open mind about the books that they were looking at. So it was a wonderful list. Um, there was, yeah, and, and, and it was amazing. And especially this last year, as you know, as everybody knows, but you know, Paul, because you've been helping authors that there's been none of the events that I've been looking forward to, all the book talk and the festivals and all the things I was really excited about. You know, after once I'd, I'd just got my book launch in last year and then like within a couple of weeks we were shut down. So it was uh, an amazing boost to, uh, you know, to be able to bring it to more readers, which was lovely. I remember when I first started um, like studying creative writing, going back to school about 10 years ago, all these publishers coming to talk to us and saying, there's not going to be any books in 10 years time. You know, <laughs> they're all going and there'll be Kindles, but that's it. And you won't get to, there won't be bookshops. And I was really, it was very anxiety making, but, oh, but they're thriving now. And especially the independence, which is great. I love books. I have always loved books. My heart races when I walk into a, beautiful library or something but it's not the same reading on a kindle it smells so good they did but and then also you i mean i like reading in the bath and you can't yeah. <laughs> you know. the, the new kindle you can take you can take in the bath because it's water. can you yeah that's terrible i yeah. like to flip pages yeah i, I do too I love books, but I, I, I do I do enjoy having a Kindle because when I go on holiday, I used to sort of my, my suitcase would basically be full of books because I read I read yeah. massively on holiday. I read like, you know, a book a day or two books a day sometimes. And having a Kindle has just freed up my luggage space. So I'm I'm very grateful to Kindle existing. But I won't also, remind you that we don't need luggage space anymore. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the other thing to point out, of course, as well, is that Kindle are actually good for authors because authors get a, a higher percentage share of the sale of ebooks than we do with physical books. That is true. So there's, 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 there's good and bad in it, isn't there? Oh, yeah. And both is great. Both is fantastic. No, both, yeah, both is great. It's, it's, it's really useful, for, well, particularly now because my mail, Spanish mail is not very reliable. So I'm having to rely more on Kindle. But I did come over with a suitcase full of books. Let's go back to Sophie now. And I think Sophie has a, another reading for us from, mm, from sure. the novel. So, um, yes, as I uh, said, there was a, there's an aunt who's one of the characters in the book. And um, we get to see 
some of the, the world from the ant's point of view. And this chapter is called Amazing. There are two parts to my life, and they are as different from each other as you are to a stranger who sat next to you on a bus one summer's day or borrowed a library book you had once read. The before and after of me are not two halves of one, as many lives must be, young and old, child and parent. There is nothing that follows as a natural progression, only a clear division. Of course, were you to meet me in person, you would not notice anything of distinction about me at all, save perhaps a minor imperfection. Introducing myself to you this way, though, through a meeting of minds, as it were, will allow you to understand the very great change in my circumstances. We say meeting of minds, though really it is my mind that is being met. This is not a two-way discovery. Welcome. The difficulties you may experience in understanding my story are to be expected. There is a small comparison to be made between my own transformation and the one you are embarking upon, but only a small one, since your discovery is by conventional means and mine was, as far as can be told, unique. Yet you will be prey to sudden jolts and shocks, and your already advanced and settled knowledge of the world and its physical constraints will at times obstruct the absorption of new, conflicting information. Still, here you are, embracing the process. We must commend ourselves for our exploratory natures. We will start with the night that everything changed. The first difficulty is how to properly convey the way things happened without tainting your impressions with my current form. You will understand so much more if we can edge a little into my original incarnation and proceed from there. To this end, let us envisage the bedroom of the converted Victorian terrace flat on a warm June night. The household sleeps and our small party enters from the garden, lured by the scent of something sweet. That sounds like you've had a very busy January. So just to round up, do you have anything planned for March 2021? Yes, I do. We have, um, we have an event on March the 4th, um, which is a Polari Live Online, which is trans-themed. And the two guests are the cartoonist Stephen Appleby, who's coming to talk about um, their book Drag Man, which came out last year. And Alex Reeve, who is an historical crime writer who wrote a book called um, The House on Half Moon Street, which was the first book in a series of, of, of novels about a character called Leo Stanhope, who is living in Victorian England, but has a secret. And the secret is that Leo Stanhope is a trans man. And the third book has just has just been released. So he's coming on to talk about that. Right. Well, that'll definitely be something to look forward to. All right. Lots of love to you. And you love. Bye.